Hello and welcome to this special edition of Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. I'll be talking to Dr. Professor Dr. Jordan Peterson. I've spoken to him before, but this special commemorative, well, it's not really a commemorative chat, it's not a tea tale for the royal wedding between Meghan Merkel and Prince Harry. It's uh, to celebrate the release on paperback of my book, Recovery. Look at it now on Amazon. It's £6.50, I think. Might even be £6.47. We talk about that book, Recovery. We talk about the principles of recovery as a road to enlightenment. We talk about Dr. Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life. It's an interesting chat, talking about myth. We do, of course, go through some of the mainstays of Professor Peterson's, uh, uh, what, I don't know, canon of ideas that he commonly talks about. But also, I think we really get to the heart of it and discover some... Uh, some people think there's an exclusion of warmth, I think, sometimes, when talking about Peterson's ideas and his... Um, uh, insistence on individual culpability and responsibility. We get into that stuff quite deeply. I think it's a great chat. Those of you who don't know who Jordan Peterson is yet, where where have you been? Obviously not watching him at the Hammersmith Apollo with 5,000 others. So yeah, we're talking to Jordan Peterson on Under the Skin. Thanks for joining me and do check out my book, Recovery on Paperback. Thank you. Dr. Jordan Peterson, thank you for coming on Under the Skin. It's lovely to see you again. It's good to see you too. It's nice to meet in London. Yeah, it's different, isn't it? We Both of us were exiled in Los Angeles in our last conversation, but I enjoyed it very much. I got a lot from it. I'm happy to talk to you. on. This is very much home turf for me now. Mm -hmm. We're in London. We're in a publishing office. You have been promoting your book. I presume that's why you're here. Uh, yes, and, do, and doing a public couple of public lectures. Um, How do you find that now? How are you finding... Well, I thought, in a way, I've been comparing you to the British opposition leader, Jeremy Corbyn, in that you've been doing this for ages, and now you're experiencing a uh, an almost, perhaps, unprecedented level of attention. But mm -hmm. I'm assuming that your skill set is applicable. You're a lecturer, you're a clinical psychoanalyst, so it's not like, oh, my God, there's cameras. Right, right. Well, and I mean, the, the, the large-scale lectures I'm doing aren't that much different in kind from the lectures I was doing at the university. I mean, the venues are larger. And, yeah. But the... Hammersmith but, Apollo, 3,000 seats, I think, maybe there more. Were, yeah, there were 5,000 at the Apollo. Well, that's... Were you not nervous? Um, I'm not as nervous doing that as I am often going to talk to journalists. Individual journalists. Yeah, because, like, the thing about those venues, there's a variety of things about them that work in my favor. I mean, I like talking to crowds. Mm. You know, I've always enjoyed lecturing. And so lecturing to several thousand people isn't much different than le lecturing to several hundred people. But I also know that the people who've come are, they're happy to be there. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to a welcoming crowd. And mm. so, and it's all, all of the details are essentially under my control. So... Mm. So it's not, it, it, I'm actually enjoying it quite a bit. I mean, I'm apprehensive beforehand because, well, because you should be, you know, I want to do a good job and I yes. want to make sure things go well and I want to get through the material properly and, and, and get a little farther in my thinking than I have been. And, and I'm trying to make each time I lecture better than the last time. And I don't, obviously, I always don't succeed at that, but, 
but it's good. I'm enjoying it. And my wife is a very good travel companion. She's very stable and she helps me plan my days. And so we've got it down to a bit of a routine, I would say. Tammy is in the room with us. We have already met previously in Los Angeles. You won't be on mic. There isn't a mic, but it's uh, just in case listeners are wondering why. Perhaps they might be able to detect in my voice that I'm occasionally glancing towards a spouse. The reason is because I am. Now, well, I'm curious. When you're um, doing these lectures, yeah. is there not a performance component? Do you not feel oh, like... Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, sure. I mean, a lecture theatre is a theatre. You know, and, and lecture is a form of theatre. Now, it, it's a serious form of theatre, but theatre can be serious. You know, and, and there's a... See, because partly what I'm doing is I'm presenting ideas to an audience, but I'm also modelling the act of engaging with ideas. And that's the theatrical a- end of it. And I don't give the same talk twice. Like, I have my stories, and I have my collection of things I know and I talk about, but I try to I try to do two things. Um... I try to, in, I'm always talking to specific individuals in the audience. And so I'm having a conversation with the audience. And so that's that's part of the dynamic element of the performance. And the other thing I'm trying to do is to further my thinking on the topics that I'm addressing. And there is a theatrical element to that because it's it's like, I think this, the closest thing really that it compares to is probably stand-up comedy. Although I think the routines that comedians have are probably more well and formally practiced than the ones that that you know than than the than the talks that I that I engage in. And I don't really think of it as delivering a lecture to an audience. I'm trying to think about complicated things in real time with an audience there to participate and and to use the audience as an indicator of whether what I'm saying is gripping and comprehensible. Your apprehension and, and, and uh, understandable adrenaline prior to going on stage doesn't lead you to lean into shtick, you know, which would be the opposite of what you're describing, wanting to remain engaged in a kind of dialectic process yep. of discovery. Because I find, I mean, obviously I am a comedian, so yep. like for, for us, I, I would argue, there is a there is a distinction between performing for before 200 people or 5,000 people. Around 200, I feel like I'm very relaxed, I'm comfortable, I feel like I've got a lot of space in there. Mm. Uh, 5,000, I feel like, sharpen up now. You've you've got no room, particularly because the other crucial difference is uh, there needs to be a laugh every 20, 30 seconds. If there isn't, it gets pretty frosty up there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's appealing to me as a comedian that's interested, interested in furthering intellectual debate, looking at the new intersections between politics and spirituality. Perhaps they've always been there. These, some, these evaporating contexts, the emergence of new ideas, perhaps best exemplified by your own particular trajectory. It's interesting to me that, that these spaces are now becoming Coming available for forms of uh, types of performance that aren't so contingent. It is on rapture and applause. Yeah, no, no, and... right. I, I know it. It is a very strange thing, and I'm not sure what to make of it. You know, you see Sam Harris doing something quite similar. Richard Dawkins is doing something quite similar, and and it's it's. I mean, I was thinking because I've been trying to conceptualize this, and and one one comparable audience or one comparable situation is probably that of, of stand-up comedians. Another, I suspect, are uh, traveling evangel- evangel- evangelical types. Yeah. You know, because they're... But, but of course, what they're doing is explicitly religious. This is... This, this has elements of both of those. And 
what's emerging that's so interesting is that there's a clear public um, appetite for high-level intellectual conversation if it's if it's dynamic, and I don't know what what's accounting for that all of a sudden. Maybe it's because these sorts of discussions aren't taking place like they should in the classical media space. You might be right there, Jordan. I mean, to slightly mangle to slightly mangle the young quote that you use in your book. Um, 12 rules that I'm really enjoying actually uh, like that one could infer motivation from results right. perhaps right. It, it is that that political discourse social discourse has become superficial and detached from meaning from purpose yeah. from experience that there is an opening appetite for substance that people are yeah. starting yeah. to what you know and, and, and as you said about theatre before you know the origins of theatre and the origins of religion are closely connected mm-hmm. and, and both of them still uh, owe a debt or at least functionally must relate to meaning, purpose, giving yeah. us stories that help illuminate the path well, that we're walking. That, well, I think, that, I think that's, 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 there's something about that that's profoundly correct. I think that, you know, that the New York Times has recently written about the rise of the so-called intellectual dark web, which is a term that Eric Weinstein so brilliantly coined, I would say, and, and very thoughtfully. Um, I think that the thing that unites the people who are loosely grouped into that collection is that they are having serious conversations with an audience that they respect. And they're a very diverse range of people. They don't certainly don't, like Sam, and, Sam Harris and I disagree about many things, for example. And um, But Sam respects his audiences, and he's and he's engaging them in extremely serious discourse about very deep topics, you know, about the structure of reality, actually, and, and the relationship between science and religion. And, 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 the, and I think it is a, a consequence of the fact that not only has our public discourse, let's say, in the media and in politics become shallow, I think it's become unbearably shallow in the universities. Really? So, yeah, well, because it's become so ideological. You know, and it's just not helpful. Look, I was interviewed by a New York Times journalist last week. Uh, Nellie was her name. And she's going to publish this on Sunday. And she did a literature degree at Columbia. And she told me that she was quite appalled, actually, by her degree, uh, especially in, in, in hindsight. She told me that she didn't know until she graduated that there was any other way of reading great literature than through a postmodern lens. And the postmodern lens takes a book and basically you take a book, whatever it happens to be, and you decide which power hierarchy the author was serving and who's he, who he's ex, or she has excluded from consideration. So it's completely read through a political lens as if the book is nothing but a tool of political and economic domination essentially and that's the assumption and like look everything's contaminated by politics and power to some degree right but that doesn't mean that there's nothing to art and literature except in service of of like group domination it's an appalling way of looking at the world it would be an extraordinary bias to bring to jane eyre it's a bit difficult to sort of make sense of it through that lens. Of course, you know, economics and politics, like, yeah, of course, important themes are going to be present in great works of art. But uh, I, I'm interested. But there's still great works of art. Yes. That's the thing. And it's like, well, even, even with something as transient as comedy, let's say, I mean, you can't reduce comedy to the political or the economic. And, 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 and comics who become too ideological 
let's say, like musicians who become ideolo too ideological, they're just not funny anymore. Yeah. You, you have to be, I mean, you can have your viewpoint, left or right, that's fine, and people do, but you have to be able to transcend that viewpoint continually, and you have to be able to criticize it, I because otherwise you're not amusing. You just become a demagogue of sorts. Yes, I would agree that once there's a rubric to which you become enslaved, that it becomes uh, dogmatic, then, then there's no room for nuance, there's no room for hypocrisy, humour, the transcendent, mm -hmm. mirth, chaos. Mm -hmm. These forces need to be unleashed. I, right. There's also things you can no longer laugh about. Because you're, you know, you're so committed to your axioms, you can't, you, you dare not transgress against them. And if that's deadly, if you're a comedian, because the rule for comedy would be, and this is something I like about about Sarah Silverman, for example, is she will say anything if she thinks it's funny. Like she's very daring in that manner. And like I've heard her tell jokes that you know really would curl your hair, mm. you know. But you can tell by watching her, something will pop into her head, and part of her goes, "Geez, I don't know if I should say this," and then she'll say it. And it's often like horribly funny and horribly funny is a good kind of funny. I mean, it's 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 daring and and it's something I really admire about comedians, too, is that they'll they'll take that risk. And and it's something also that, that I found disturbing about with regards to the many things I find disturbing about university campuses is that so many comedians won't go perform on university campuses anymore because they can't be funny. People get offended, and it's a false offend, off offended. I think you're right. I mean, I think it's like a kind of Simon Says type of, uh, like, do you know that game? Do you have that game in your language? It's just like, ah, oh, there's certain things that we know we're not allowed to say. There's certain things that we know we're supposed to think. There's a kind of a, a kind of formulaic dance, a courtly behavior, mm -hmm. I've heard it referred to as, that we are meant to pay a homage to a particular type of set of protocols and manners and it's not necessarily anchored to a real morality it's not anchored to a, a sort of a sense of spirit to a sense of love or kindness it's about like these are the rules that we abide by mm. i want to talk to you a bit about uh, the 12 steps and the model for handling addiction that i've written about myself in my book recovery because i want to see what you think of it uh, like so like uh, the 12 steps have anonymous fellowships, which I, if I were to belong to them, I wouldn't be able to say I belong to them without breaching their code of anonymity. But uh, the, uh, what's positive about uh, this approach to addiction is, uh, as we've discussed off mic, uh, that it creates community, mm -hmm. like the other people that have got a similar endeavour. In fact, it was Jung that identified uh, this uh, this solution. Mm -hmm. he, um, he said that like people that have got chronic addi addiction issues will struggle to change unless they have a spiritual realization of some kind yeah. and the support of a community yeah. well in the spiritual realization component that's actually supported by the relevant addiction literature one of the classic cures for addiction is spiritual transformation and the hardcore scientists have have laid that out as as a reality in the addiction literature i agree because to use more secular language around that a spiritual transformation could just be a change of perspective mm -hmm. a, a renewal yes, a radical of, change of perspective yeah, yeah. from and, and typically in my experience that's from a self-centered view a self-obsessive view about getting your own needs met uh, a solipsistic narcissistic perspective of life is this uh, is just an adventure where i go around trying to accumulate and accrue to oh wow i'm here to be of service that's sort of the mm -hmm. transition in right right 
yes. microscopically. But in addition to uh, community, like having connections between one another, the, the 12 steps themselves, I think, are an interesting model for transformation and shouldn't be overlooked. And in mm. fact, what my book was about is, can could that method be transposed to anybody who's interested in change? So I wanted to talk to you about that to get your perspective on sure. them. The first step is acknowledging that you are powerless over your addiction and that your life has become unmanageable. Just admitting, this is mm. I don't want to so be that, in this situation. Okay, so, okay. So two, there's two parts to that admission. Eh? One is that you're in trouble. Yeah. And I guess there's three. You're in trouble and it's serious. Things could be better mm. and you don't have the wherewithal at the moment to make them better. So the thing that's interesting about that is there's a kind of radical humiliation and humility that mm. goes along with that. So you say, I have a problem yeah. and what I know at the moment isn't sufficient to solve it. Great, yes. because now you've opened yourself up to the possibility of learning something. Because yes. you say, well, I don't know. I don't know enough to fix this. It's like, yeah. okay, well, you could learn. And one of the things that's so interesting about people is that if they decide they have a problem and they also notice that they could learn, the probability that they will learn goes way up. Mm, that's very interesting. You've actually conflated the first three steps there in your analysis of the first one because the, the first one is admission that there's a problem. The second one is recognising that things could improve, like came to believe that power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And the third one is made a decision to turn our life and our will over to the care of God as we understood God. So like, you know, yeah. Admit yeah, we could talk about that from a secular perspective. Well, we could talk about that from a secular perspective and say, well, there's a, there's a higher order moral principle that needs to be brought into the situation. And you sort of described that right at the beginning of the question because you said, well, what, partly what you do when you move from an addicted state, fr from a psychological perspective, is move from a viewpoint of the gratification of immediate desire and, and maybe the accumulation of things as a marker of mm -hmm. success to the notion that, no, you actually have a higher purpose and that higher purpose might involve being of service. That could be of service to yourself, which means you wouldn't be addicted anymore because that's not a good way of being of service to yourself, but of service to yourself and the broader community, however you might define that. That's a higher order purpose and it can integrate your motivations at, at a level that doesn't leave you at the whim of impulse. That's yes. the purpose of a higher order motivation. So, okay, so we've got three. Yes, that, that's the, the first three is to get you to that position where you're willing to change, believe in the possibility of change and accept help in order to achieve that change. Yep. The fourth and fifth steps are about inventorying. Get, like, so this is where uh, the 12-step program becomes a fusion of spirituality and psychoanalysis because the fourth step is like a, a four-column method where you write down a list of all your resentments in your life, your mm -hmm. childhood resentments, your resentments against uh, the government, people you work with. You write it all down and then there's a diagnostic tool where you identify what it is in you that doesn't like that mm -hmm. and and also interestingly in uh, in 12 step um theology let's call it it says that anything any time that you are personally disturbed there is you have to take responsibility for it to a degree there is something in you that's being affected yeah you should at least ask yourself that question yes like, is it me or is it the world yes it's like well let's consider first the possibility that it might be you i wrote about that in the sixth rule right put your house Set in your perfect order house. yes yeah. yes in fact i've got our two rule like my like i did a truncated 
and somewhat more uh, uh, linguistically explicit uh, an expletive laden version <laughs> of the 12 steps and I've got your 12 rules for life here and they don't necessarily correlate but like because like you know say your first one stand up straight with your shoulders back oh, that's a, a great chapter I think and I love the you know the lobster stuff and the sort of the uh, the ancient timeless almost roots of hierarchies yeah, yeah. and the chemicals that are at play what's happening when you're you know, what what's at play when we talk about self esteem um I, like and this yeah the sixth one set your own house in perfect order i said before you criticize the world steps 4 and 5 in the tw- in a 12 step mm-hmm. program deal with that mm-hmm. inventory what's going on in your life right, right. inventory what your baggage is in your own personal well narrative. you think it's very practical that it's like well let's say you want to fix up your house which is actually quite a lot like fixing yourself up which is a very common dream metaphor yeah. fix- well the first thing you want to do is go look around and see what needs to be fixed you know, and, and this, the interesting thing about that, and this is akin to what comedians do, is that as soon as you're willing to admit, comedians look at a problem and then rise above it right away and make a joke about it, but as soon as you're willing to admit that you have a problem, then you're, you've immediately contacted the part of yourself that's at least strong enough to admit that you have a problem. And so as soon, the act of admitting the problem is actually the first step to solving it. Yes. You might say, well... And it, it's an optimistic step because you, you might say, oh, my God, I can't admit to I, that I have a problem because what if I can't solve it? Well, exactly. So then maybe you won't admit to it. If you do admit to it, you're simultaneously admitting to the possibility that you could solve it. Yes. And then it can actually become something that's optimistic. You can yes. say, well, my life is horrible. It's like, OK, but I'm doing 50 things wrong. Well, great, I could fix those things, and then maybe it wouldn't be so horrible. It demonstrates the admission itself demonstrates progression and possibility for further progression. Exactly. I think it relates That's to why the, humility is always stressed in, in, in great religious traditions. Humility is precisely that. It's like you have to look at why you're not so good. Yeah. You have to, and, and, you know, that, that has to break down your pride to some degree and your arrogance. It's like, well, that's great, because if you break down your pride and your arrogance, then you're primed to learn and you can solve your problems. So there's nothing in that. It's a bit crushing to begin with because you might think, oh, my God, there's really a lot of things wrong with me. Yes. But at least then you're on the on the road to fixing them. My personal journey of recovery has been a, like a kind of death. It, like, you know, mm-hmm. like at, when I was 27, it was like the death of the drug addict self. That guy died. That's funny because I told Tammy when we were coming here today that when you were 27, you made the decision to live. Yes. I knew it was 27 because that's when people... I'm die. going to say like you, but, you know, yeah. celebrities who, who are sort of on fire, they die all the time at 27 because they don't make that decision. They decide that they don't decide that they're going to take that final step into maturation. They want to hold on to that Peter Pan thing, that, that possibility. You bet. You, exactly that. They want to hold on to that. And you, you can't hold on to that and live. Yes, yeah. and then there's a further death I'm noticing now in my early forties that like are oh, now at the midway point yeah. at the midway in a sort of Dante-esque way. Uh, I and now I'm moving towards the grave, mm-hmm. and now I'm like there's a different kind of alertness emerging. And back to this step okay. four and five moment, yeah. this process of inventorying. After you've made an inventory and you've you've correctly you've honestly and openly put down everything incidents of child abuse things that you've said to other people things that your shame once you've been willing to inscribe your shame then you tell another person a person that you trust in the original literature it says you know it could be a cleric a doctor or whatever to 
typically in uh, in twelve step structures, it's like a mentor figure. But that has the, that's the role of confession, which is obviously a huge part of psychoanalysis. The point yep. in your book, I think this pertains to, is when you talk about the dragon and like the dragon. Get, you said there was that kids book that you read where it talks about the dragon getting bigger and bigger if it's not identified. Yep. I think four and five are somewhat like that. Yeah, and, well, and part of the point of that kids book is that as soon as you turn around and look at something, it tends to shrink. Mm. And that's partly because imagine that you have a memory that you won't confront. Well, there's something in that memory that's terrifying. But, and that means it's sort of associated with everything else that's terrifying. And so it's, hor- it's horrible. But then when you turn around and look at it, you think, yeah, it's horrible, but it's, it's horrible in this precise and defined way. Mm. And that takes it away from all the other potential horrors of it. It starts to shrink it right away. It also makes you into the thing that can turn around and look at the horror, which is a real, real positive transformational act on your part. So it's true that somehow in like that being being prescriptive and being specific, the problem becomes manageable yes, because exactly. otherwise it's limitless. That's it's exactly. potential. A, yeah. It becomes uh, apocalyptic yeah. in the end. What what's the worst thing that's happened is I could be destroyed and everyone I love could be destroyed yeah. and Earth itself could be destroyed. And until you say, well, actually, you know what this is, is you feel inadequate because uh, you weren't role modeled correctly. Right. So, <laughs> there's all oh, right. Well, I can maybe take care of that. Right. That's still bad, but it's not everything. And then you and you you. you that exactly right is that without that attentive delimiting it becomes apocalyptic that and that's a very very old idea so Ah. one of the things that happens in the mesopotamian creation myth the enuma elish is that uh, the gods are created they're 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 the offspring of chaos that's a good way of thinking about it and they become very careless and they destroy their category system they destroy their father essentially and chaos comes flooding back and that's what happens to people who aren't looking at things and delimiting them properly they become up apocalyptic and do them in so but, but sometimes in uh, mythology there is the positive um, confronta- confronting of the god e.g. prometheus so sometimes we need to steal oh, steal the fire sometimes we mm. need to challenge these orthodoxies don't we yes absolutely i mean part part of the well part of the death that you're describing is actually the confrontation with a form of tyrant like your previously addicted self was the tyrant over your emergent self. Yes. And so it's an internal tyrant. And you said it was predicated on a false value system. That's a false set of gods, essentially. And so you had to confront that. That is a kind of death. I also think that some the addiction or addictive tendencies, and I don't mean as severe as chemical dependency or forms of addiction, addiction are a kind of self-constructed formaldehyde to preserve you in the state of trauma. That trauma is acknowledged. No means to navigate trauma are present because of the isolation because you have no mentor you have no you have no doctrine you have no community so addiction steps in this is how i will preserve this is how i will not die i will find this notice that it's a habit a repeated pattern to sustain you a holding pattern so that you don't die because there is no way out there's no guide there's no path you're just in the forest and there isn't a way out so i feel that addiction for personal experience and i i hope and suspect more broadly is a means for sort of stasis, for preservation after trauma. The rupture occurs, well, is not mm. addressed, and, and a means for survival emerges in the form of addiction. Addiction is not your nemesis, it is your friend, at least while you're, you know, in, whilst you're in well, it. Well, there's certainly a literature on addiction that indicates that many people use addictive substances as a form of self-medication. Mm. And they tend to find the drug that best, best medicates them, let's say. 
and for different people, that's different drugs. Yes, so or some even gambling. Alcohol. Yeah, like yeah. I think. It, and now, see, one of the other things that I'm proposing in my book, to use rather grandiose terminology, is that the uh, the, the template for a recovery from obvious forms of addiction could be applicable to less evident forms of addiction, i.e., mm. just patterns and habits, and um, because. Yeah. Excuse well, me. so far, the things you've laid out would be would be in keeping with that idea. Would they? Well, you admit to the problem. Yeah. I, I really also, I think the idea of laying out your resentments is unbelievably useful because that's also a way of dealing with the malevolence within you that might interfere with your own recovery. Yes. Like if you're angry at yourself, if you're angry at your parents, if you're angry at the world, the probability that you're going to be in the mental state that's going to allow you to chart a positive course for yourself yes. is very, very low. How can you have a clear and authentic relationship with your wife if you've not correctly understood what you feel about your own mother? If you feel like that you were enmeshed or trapped in some way, how am I supposed to have an or if, if I've not understood that, if I've not gained a new perspective, if I've not transcended it by sharing see, with another person? You see that in, in, in the Sleeping Beauty story, in the Disney story, when the prince is encapsulated in the castle in the dungeon at the end and before he goes and rescues Sleeping Beauty he has to confront his terrible mother she turns into the dragon of chaos itself he has to use honesty and truth to confront her and until he does that he can't free the maiden from her sleep yes so that yes. that's called the that's called the freeing of the anima from the negative mother archetype in Jungian psychology it's precisely that and that and that negative feminine will be overlaid on your partner unless you unless you're able to clarify it and clarify your relationship with it and that could be something like overprotection, or it could you know in your past or it could be neglect for that matter mm. or it could be the rejection at many at the hands of many many women before you encountered this woman yes and that then you're going to bring that bitterness forward as a kind of projection if we are unwilling to undertake this kind of excavation, then we are doomed to continually have relationships that are cutaneous, just the, the superficial coordinates will govern our experience of relationships. Yes. Uh, so yeah, that, that's the repetition compulsion from a Freudian perspective, is that, that's, and, I mean, that isn't how Freud explained it. That's how a Jungian would explain it. But, but the simple explanation of it is, well, if you bring the same set of unexamined presuppositions to every situation, the same fate will play out. You might say, well, all those women are the same. It's like, well, actually, no. But the part of the, the part of them that you're able to make contact with acts the same every time. That's yes. a very different thing. Brilliant. And this is where six and seven, the next steps chronologically occur. Like that six, having done this inventory, you recognise what patterns have been at play in your life, which particular in the lexicon of the recovery defects of character have governed you. Often pride, mm -hmm. uh, wanting to control other people's perspective, self-pity, self-centeredness, intolerance, impatience, greed, mm -hmm. jealousy, envy, mm -hmm. lust, sloth. Right. That's like, where you identify the seven deadly sins and how they play out in your life, essentially. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so and, and you become in the step six is about becoming willing to live differently. Like, saying, I, are you actually willing to let go of lust? Right. Are you or do you like lust when mm. it comes to it? Do you like being impatient? Does it serve you in some way to be slothful? You know, it's and it's highly probable that it does. Yes. You know, it's 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 easy. It's gratifying. It, it's powerful. It's pleasurable, especially in the short term. Like there's lots of there are reasons that people are tempted by by the seven deadly sins. I mean, yes, they're they are kind of glorious. Oh, they are dark glory they're, and beauty. That's right. They have a rom that's exactly right. They have, there's a dark romantic, and you really see that in the deaths of celebrities around 27, is they, they fall in love with the allure of that kind of, of that romantic death, and yeah. it does them in.
sort of the anti-libido, the dark libido, the death force. So with the, once you have diagnosed which particular defects of character have been most prominent in your path and become willing to let go of them, this, like it's step seven, is making a concerted and real effort to live without them. And this is where it kind of becomes... That's a sacrifice theory. That's what are you willing to sacrifice in order to move forward? You have to yes. give up something that you love. And you may have to give up the thing you love the best. Yes. That's the fundamental sacrificial motif. Sacrifice is an unattractive idea in our self, in, in our society that's based on consuming and indulgence. And this is not something that I would lay... So this is, again, perhaps you where you and I somewhat differ, is that I would not... Uh, whilst this will not change without the individual's engagement, a kind of step one, an acknowledgement that needs to be changed, this is where I say there is a social responsibility that, uh, for whatever reason, our society has become a manifestation of these darker impulses. These are the prevalent forces at least in the kind of society I live in I don't know what it's like to live in China or Libya I'm just saying like in London like what you're too much emphasis on immediate gratification too much emphasis on because immediate gratification is a tool of consumerism this would be my argument Mm -hmm. Um, so like uh, but at this point in the program it's where the the spirituality becomes I find personally undeniable that you have to uh you have to call to something else. You have to, in a sense, be- lay yourself open. The mm-hmm. idea of prayer becomes mm-hmm. quite important. Now, See, uh, so there's a, there's a Jungian idea there. So the Jungian self is the thing that guides the ego through transformations. So imagine the ego, which is what you think you are. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing about the ego is that the ego can be wrong and the ego can die and be reborn. So what that indicates is that there's something underneath the ego yes, that can yes. guide that process of transformation. Yes. And partly what you're calling on when you call on this higher power is at least from a psychological perspective, it's a decision to rely on that thing that can guide you through transformations. Yes, because surely, as we said, in relation to another, we are likely relating to a set of coordinates that we impose on, in inverted mm-hmm. commas, the female. The true same would be true of the self, yeah. that we have created an impression, an egoic impression. We have constructed an artificial self, but yeah. beneath it there is a higher self or an That's ulterior right. self. Yeah. That can it's, be... often composed of, it's often composed of things that you refused to or would, weren't willing to develop. And so when Jung talks about, for example, the incorporation of the shadow, is that mm. you've constructed an ego and there's things it can do and, and can't do that it's allowed to do and it isn't allowed to do. And then there's a shadow domain that would consist of those things that you could do but haven't. And some of that's terrible, but some of it's what you need to break free. Is there an infinite variety in the shadow or are there sort of templates there? Would you say that, you know, a common component of the aggression. shadow is lust, aggression? Aggression and lust. Are saying, the two because they're the most the two that are most civilized. Yeah, they're the two that are most difficult to integrate into the ego, because aggression destroys and of course lust subsumes the individual to 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 well to sexual to sexual desire. It's such a lust is a, identified as a very powerful self. It can it can subsume. So I suppose that's why a lot of theological doctrines focus on the control mm-hmm. of lust. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there is of course well, a, it's a disruptive force, you know, because for example, if you make a medium to long term relationship with someone and you negotiate that, that provides you with a stable structure that can operate across your entire life. It's good for you. It's good for them. It's good for your kids. Mm. It's good for society. But then if you're really attracted to someone momentarily, you can be driven to act on that and, and, and every, all the rest of that can burn up. It's not good. And so it's no wonder that it's viewed as a, a force of a tremendous disruption. Now, it's also a force of tremendous life, right? Because you want to be attracted to people. You want to have that that 
that vital libido yes. as part of a part of what's driving you forward but hopefully it's on your side and not working against you and so you know if you're successful and you've put yourself together and you're disciplined you should still be maximally sexually attractive but it should be under your control you're not a you're not the puppet of that force anymore it's integrated into you and that's a much better way to manage it how do you uh, in your understanding how is the shadow incorporated what rituals what ceremonies what behaviors successfully incorporate the shadow say in the using the example of lust what's a way back in for the sort of uh, for for lust that has been disembodied or repressed what is a mm. safe way for it back in is there one well i think part of it is to is to admit to your desires within your own relationship you know because you might say well i'm i'm tired of my wife it's like well yeah maybe maybe you're tired of the games that you're intelligent enough to play with your wife but she's as pluripotential as you are and so you have to admit to your desires let's say and maybe you have to make them consciously manifest within your own relationship mm. and then you know and people can do that people do that by by dressing up or by by playing sexually, I would say. Yeah, play. Because by play, exactly that. And play is a transformative element. And that yes. should be, you know, and it might be that you're uncomfortable with the idea of, of your wife as sexual plaything because you think that a woman who's married should be proper and prim and should only behave sexually in a certain way. Mm. In which case, well, that becomes sterile and dull and you're more likely to be tempted by something on the outside. For me, that's a very obvious example of how habitualized thinking is prohibitive even without reaching the extremes of self-destructive addictive tendencies, if I have a habit of regarding my wife as as object A, yeah. even if that's not objectification as we typically yeah. take it, yeah. but you know, limiting beliefs about my wife, that the tools that break down addictive uh, thought patterns could be used to create new terrains, new liberty, mm -hmm. new play. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, so once you've done up to step seven, which is essentially step seven, you're right. It's also sacrifice of the old self and handing over to the, some kind of sublime divine self. Um, the, the step eight is you make a list of people that you have harmed and mm -hmm. become willing to make amends to them. So you look back at your past and go, God, mm -hmm. I shouldn't have stolen that. I shouldn't have done that. I treated mm -hmm. that person badly. That mm -hmm. was wrong. I lied. So it's moral. Mm -hmm. It becomes quite a moral Yeah, and process. that's a real repentance, right? And atonement. Atonement is at one meant. Yes. And if you're carrying transgressions that you regard as transgressions now in your life, then mm. you don't want to carry those forward. You want to, you, want to, you want to step forward in life without that moral burden because you'll have contempt for yourself otherwise and you won't take care of yourself. It also, uh, in a sense, what you were talking about, about allowing lust back into incorporating lust just then, uh, this is a, a, a more a broader method for incorporating annexed aspects of the self. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, how can you fully love, how can I fully love myself if I know I treated that person abominably? Well, if right. I go back and say that was wrong, I did you wrong, I owe you an amends, you, uh, you invite that part of your life in. You amend That's your right. path through life as well as teaching yourself that that is not the way we mm -hmm. proceed anymore. That's step right. eight. And, and that's a real, that's, that's taking out, that's real action in the world. It's not a hypothetical at that point, right? Yes. It's kind of like telling people what you've written down about your, uh, about your faults. 
Yes, yes. Because it makes it real when, you, when you're acting it out with someone else. It's not only a mental thing at that point. And doesn't it furthermore indicate, step, step eight is done separate. The step eight is right up the list of yep. people. Step nine is now go do right, it. Right. it. It makes the distinction, I think, to create a space for you where you're not, where you're not continually thinking, I'm not fucking doing that. I'm mm-hmm. not going to apologize. I was abused by them. Fuck that. They did yep. as much wrong as I did. Yep. You just, you Which just, is not the point, right? It's not the point. No. And also, I think... They might have uh, done more wrong than you did. Yes. But you're still stuck with the fact that you did something wrong. That's and right. that's not good. And if you refuse to surmount the obstacle of like, you know, some arbitrary measure of who is more wrong, yeah. then you continue to cast yeah. yourself in victimhood. Yeah, that's but right. But you have no personal autonomy. That's exactly right. You can't right, yeah. choose to go through it your doesn't life. Only, it doesn't matter if you're only 5% at fault. And it also doesn't matter if the other person apologizes to you. They should. It would be better for them. It might make things lay out. That's not the point. And this perhaps is where what I think is significant, that now your life has become not a negotiation between you and other beings as they materially present themselves, but between yourself and this higher purpose Mm -hmm. that has been declared earlier, that you are now operating on the, in inverted commas, spiritual plane. Mm -hmm. You are no longer about, if I do that, I'll get that. It it precisely doesn't matter if the other person goes, I don't care if you apologize or not. See, in religious language, that would be expressed as the discovery of your father in heaven instead of your earthly father because your father in heaven would be the higher spiritual authority to which you owe allegiance and and you can think about that e- either in religious terms or in non-religious terms is that what you've done is you've in in some sense is you've abstracted the the idea of a higher authority and a higher purpose and you've decided to devote yourself to that that's a religious act and that's precisely antithetical to postmodernism. it's saying that mm-hmm. the, no 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 there is an essence there is a code right. there is a way there is a that truth is, that's right that's 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 what is precisely antithetical yes because the postmodern claim is that there are multiple ways of looking at the world many ways and that's true but the antithesis of that is, yes, just because there's multiple ways of looking at the world doesn't mean there are multiple proper ways of looking at the world. Yes. In fact, there's a very narrow range of proper ways of looking at the world. My, uh, my concern with atheism has always been its uh, sort of easy affiliation with nihilism. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we just wander in the street and start fucking people then? Mm-hmm. That's, sort of like, that's, like, that's where my mind immediately goes. Right, if right. there is not an order, why not just smash everything mm-hmm. to course. smithereens? And you're saying ideologically, that is what's happening. Ideologically, yes. we're deconstructing God, we're de- deconstructing morality, we're and deconstructing gender, we're deconstructing... Right. And that was the danger that both, both Nietzsche and Dostoevsky pointed to, ah. clearly. It's like you dispense with the transcendent principle and you open up the landscape for impulsive nihilism. What are they responding yeah. to? Post-Enlightenment rationalism? Is that what Dostoevsky and Nietzsche are responding to? Why are they, they were about responding that essentially to the idea of the death of God. Both mm. of them. And, and that explicitly. And is that an Enlightenment idea? Like, where is, there, where is death of God happening prior be at to the ha- Be at the hands of a, of a kind of arrogant and narrow rationalism and mm. a materialism. Yeah. Yeah, and the exposition of, or the, yeah, the, the exponentially that has led us to where we're going now, which is a kind of, okay, we're, we're sort of digging the earth from beneath our feet and right. putting ourselves right. into the abyss. That's right. That, that's, that's, the, that's the hypothesis precisely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yes. 10, 11, the last three steps. Step 10 is uh, like uh, continue to make inventory. So like let this process continue. Like on yeah. day, uh, For me in psycho 
an analytic term, so I see a therapist, obviously. Like, uh, like is when, like, uh, when there's a moment, I know, I know any spike in my energy. If I go, oh, I felt some, that was interesting. I felt jealous there, or yeah. I felt, I felt small in that yeah, moment. Right, exactly. These are the yeah. moments I know and go, oh, how was I participating in that? What belief of mine was being challenged? Mm. Is that a helpful belief? Belief being a thought that I like having. Um, Eleven. Right. That's a kind of consciousness. Is like, well, I'm going to fall apart. I'm going to make mistakes. I don't want to make mistakes. I'm going to keep an eye out for when I do make mistakes and I'm going to make them conscious and then I'm going to try to work on them. Yes, bringing yeah. them into um, into consciousness because mm -hmm. my fear, my number one fear on a personal level and possibly on a social level, I don't know quite how to extrapolate or conflate those two notions, is unconsciousness. I get very mm -hmm. afraid when I'm dealing with unconscious individuals, when, pe when I'm, people don't know why they're doing what they're doing. You may see this in sort of violent rage or even in less dramatic or theatrical behaviours. Mm -hmm. I you know, feel well, there's a the great idea that, that lurks at the bottom of, of the Christian mythological tradition is that a little bit of consciousness destroyed the original paradise. We became conscious enough to be aware of our own mortality. But the cure for that is way more consciousness, not a return to unconsciousness. Yes, there's no right. going back. There's no, there's no. no going back. I sometimes think the plethora of zombie movies mm -hmm. is, you know, they don't know they're already dead. Mm -hmm. um, like so, like yeah, well, that that danger of the zombie is the danger of the desire for unconsciousness as a as a solution to life's problems. And I think that this is again something we're being invited to uh, to participate in through consumerism that live your life continually on the frequency of unconscious energy such as desire and fear. That we're not being we're not being invited to participate on the level of consciousness, conscious interaction, presence in the moment. Well. You could make that case if you made the case that consumerism promotes the gratification of immediate desires above all else. I think it does. That's my. That's what I'm pushing for. Mm -hmm. um, so with this original sin, uh, like so, a little bit of consciousness is a dangerous thing. We become aware of our vulnerability, our mortality, yeah, our right. nakedness, our yeah. corporeal nature. But the solution to this is to to become more conscious. Do we have to? So uh, how do you? How was that? Well, is you that the whole rest of, of the Bible. Yes, I would say so. <laughs> like yes. When, so I'm wondering, where does that get resolved? Not yeah. when they get kicked out of the garden, well, not when Cain well, slays well, Abel. Look, well, part of, part of what happens in, in, the, in the redemptive story is, if you think about Christ as a symbolic figure, say a symbolic of the process of transformation that we just described, yes. is one of, the, one of the morals of the Christian passion is that you need to radically accept your limitations. And so part of this keeping your sins before your eyes, which you just described, here's all the ways that I fall short of the glory of God, let's say. Mm. You know, I make this mistake, I make this mistake, I make mis this mistake. That's all consciousness. And it's painful, right? Because you think, well, you become more conscious. It's this glorious process of enlightenment. And overall it is, but the details are exactly this. The things you need to become consciousness conscious of are precisely those things that you least want to become conscious of. And that, mm. this is the motif that Jung identified in the alchemical tradition because the alchemical, the alchemical motto, so to speak, was that which you most need to be found, that which you most need to find will be found where you least want to look. Yeah. Right. Yes, and everyone knows that's true. Like you tell someone that, they go, oh, yeah, 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 that's, yeah, I know that's true. So, mm. and that's also the greatest barrier to enlightenment because if enlightenment was all, you know, tulips and, and sunshine, then everyone would be enlightened, but it's not. It's this continual bringing before yourself all your proclivity for, for transgression. And that's that, and that, and obviously, because how are you going to solve your problems if you're not aware of them? People so, don't want it, the old discipline, do they, Jordan? Well, it's not surprising, <laughs> you know? but the alternative is far worse. That's the thing. 
Yes, and that is the yes. dis- like because I was very curious. I was very curious. Like I said, I talked about this with Tammy when we were coming here. I thought Russell decided to live when he was twenty-seven. I can't. I would like to know why. So why did you? Well, why I, did you dis- make the decision to to not allow what was consuming you to kill you? In a sense, it was taken out of my hands. For the first time, I encountered positive male authority figures, curiously, like or at least that were able to address that in particular. I was sent to a treatment centre. I had three months. I had time to think. I had time to... Was a, I, I passed from childhood directly into addictive behaviours. In fact, those addictive mm. behaviours were already present in childhood in a less toxic form. You know, My relationship, in retrospect, with chocolate was addictive my relationship with pornography as an adolescent addictive i was using mm. it to for medicative medical purposes so so when substances became an option in adolescence it was seamless and that meant that my emotional and in, uh, my emotional growth was arrested mm. at that point the reason i was able to stop is because inadvertent i was offered help i got give, i was given help by the people that the management company that i was working with said mm. you're a serious drug addict you should go away okay so partly that meant that they re- they regarded you as the sort of valuable commodity that was worth preserving Yes, there right. was a degree of that. Right, right. Well, no, but that's helpful. I mean, yeah, I mean re- regardless God. of even if it's purely an economic interest, there's there's something to that. Yes. And so and so then you went into treatment and you found and some curiously, people. Curiously, the place that I went was run by an atheist, uh, Chip Summers. But the twelve step principles you can't unpick it from the Oxford group, first century Christian group. You know, there's the, and and I for me is more appealing when you talk about it in Jungian terms. Although mm-hmm. I have no problem with the sublime and the divine, I yeah. live for that shit. But like like I was always trying to get out of my head, off my face. Those were the things I wanted a sublime experience, right. an experience of what is beyond the material. Right. That's what I want to know. So, like, but once I was in that environment and, like, you know, given drugs to help, I was addicted to opiates, so I was Mm. given a drug called Subutex then Mm -hmm. and sleeping pills because I couldn't sleep. And during that time, I suppose, in a way, I didn't fully address the issue of addiction because my I I was really promiscuous for about a decade. Mm -hmm. That that behaviour was transplanted kind of effortlessly. But I do remember a kind of moment of epiphany if epiphany is revelation of previously concealed truth when it first occurred to me you i suppose you don't have to take drugs every day i remember that thought hmm. entering and it being sort of like oh yeah i'd never thought about that because that i'd found a solution it worked mm-hmm. it worked as a way of managing pain preventing further mental investigation or discovery of conclusions that would have been unhelpful and that I wouldn't have been able to deal with i think in a lot of cases and i'm sure there's many many variables uh, that that actually chemical dependency is a successful technique for preventing suicide mm-hmm. like it's just this is a holding pattern to mm-hmm. stop me doing something more dramatic and, and and unless people have access to an ideology a structure and support that will help them through that there's it's very difficult to overcome and i was fortunate in that i was granted that and then granted this system and so and mm-hmm. as i've been mm-hmm. working it i've come to the conclusion that it is possibly universal because i think it's derived from universal ideas that's mm-hmm. why i think jung made that identified oh if it, some like if there's a spiritual experience and then the support of a community that's how someone could be stopped from dr- drinking continually, mm-hmm. alcoholic mm-hmm. drinking. Mm-hmm. And then they took this process, the, the 12, original 12-step fellowships, took uh, the Oxford group, had a program of uh, sort of 
redemption and restitution and yep. you know and like it, it seems initially in a i think in a materialistic society counterintuitive to think that the solution to addiction is going to be spiritual awakening mm -hmm. but that's what it is and the, mm -hmm. the final steps are stay connected once you are like you're continually inventorying for the moments we think oh, oh i felt something there you know that you want to be in the moment connected like and what i have to notice if i if someone makes me feel inferior or if someone if i'm sexually attracted to someone those are the most obvious examples of something that will take me out of my connection mm -hmm. and that the the final step is uh uh made it is uh help others right and right. remain awake right like, well that's the end of the hero's journey is once you go into the darkness and find something of value the next thing to do is to distribute and distribute it within the community to bring it back and distribute it within the community yeah. Now, Jordan, is it like it? It would be difficult for me to accept that you've not been sort of personally affected and are not personally angry, rather than just um, objectively, because your personal trajectory, I suppose, in the public eye at least, began with the situation in Canada with uh, sort of what you call forced speech or mm -hmm, however mm -hmm. it's termed now. Mm -hmm. you know, so, like, the, the, are you able to distinguish between your sort of sense of personal irritation? Because like, I think for most people, and tell me what, whether or not you think this is right, that academia seems like um, a, a, an ancillary area it doesn't yeah. seem mainstream to yeah. most people like but to you it seems sort of very vital but you are an academic well well okay so there's there's two things there i mean people regard academia as ancillary but it's not the reason it's not is because the universities train the people who run things mm. and so whatever's mainstream in the universities right now even though it's separate from society is going to be mainstream everywhere five years down the road. And wow. so that's that's a big problem. You think it's the vanguard, academia? Oh, definitely. No, there's no doubt about Do it. Do you think what's happening now in terms of media and politics, you could uh, could say you could preemptively have diagnosed that from what was happening five, ten years oh, ago? Oh, I, I think yeah. that I think I think that I, in some sense I was preemptively diagnosing it because I've been watching the politically correct postmodern types for quite a long time. And one of the see one of the things I noticed about five years ago, six years ago, there were two things that I noticed that I really didn't like. The first is that because I'm a personality psychologist as a researcher, not as a clinician, but as a researcher, I, I know the literature on gender differences in personality because it's part of my field. Mm. And I could tell that I was starting to have some reluctance to deliver the lecture on gender differences. Now, I didn't stop, but I, I, felt, I felt that I, I was treading on thin ice by delivering those lectures. And I thought, oh, that's not good because I'm like a comedian. I'm pretty much willing to say anything that I think is true. And, mm. and you know, regardless of the consequences in some sense, because I'd rather take the consequences of what's true. And I thought, this isn't good because if someone like me, who's, you know, rather um, uncontrollably mouthy, let's say, is starting to have second thoughts about teaching what's a very serious topic and, and, and something about which there's a very well-developed science, then how much are other people starting to censor? And at the same time, my students, many of whom were female, were telling me that they were really hesitant to talk about gender differences in any of the courses they were running. And I thought, oh, this is not good. This is seriously not good. And so, and it's certainly the case that, that my colleagues censor themselves increasingly on campus with regards to the topics they're willing to discuss. And it's subtle, you know, because imagine in a given lecture, I could discuss any of 10 things. 
and three of them are taboo. Well, mm. I just won't discuss those. Mm. You know, and that's the, that that's a kind of invisible censorship. It's not like I'll get up and say, "Look, I could have talked to you about gender differences in personality, but I won't because I'm afraid." I'll just pick another topic yeah. because there's lots of topics to choose from. And that means there's going to be a bunch of topics that are really important because actually the issue of sex differences in personality happens to be really important that people just won't talk about. And the other thing that's so annoying about this is that, especially with regards to sex differences in personality, it, well, let's say, let's say that you're firmly on the side of women, just for the sake of argument. Well, do you admit to or deny the existence of sex differences in personality? What's better for women? Well, you know, the radical leftists basically say, oh, well, those if you talk about sex differences, then you're part of the oppressive patriarchy and you're attributing to women a different kind of temperament in the attempt to continue the suppression. But I could just as easily say as like, well, wait a second. Like if you want to if you want to uh, give the individual the greatest degree of freedom, you say, look, you you're different from another person. You're different on the basis of a variety of your characteristics, sex being one of them. That's going to have some effect on what sort of choices you want to make in your life. It's like, go ahead and make whatever choices you want as far as they're a direct expression of your being. And so if you deny the existence of these sex differences, which no one, no serious commentator in the psychological literature, in the personality domain, and those are the people who know about this thing, nobody debates whether or not sex differences in personality exist or that they have a biological component. No, and what's also interesting about that is that none of those people are conservatives. There are no conservative psychological researchers to speak of. They're in a tiny minority. So the people that have done the research indicating that there are differences between the sexes and personality and that those differences have a biological, in part, a biological component, those are liberal and left-leaning people who've drawn those conclusions, despite their, you know, despite what their ideological presuppositions might have suggested to them to begin with. Mm. So, well, so you know, it's I don't I know what to say about that except that it's it's all appalling. <laughs> I suppose the fear must be that difference will ultimately be used for leverage, for status. Sure, it, and and that's a reasonable fear. You know, because because anything can be manipulated, but but claims of identity can of identi of what, what, claims that that people are identical in some way can also be used for the same reason. You know, if I insist that everyone is exactly the same on all dimensions, that there's just as much of a totalitarian threat lurking in there as there is the threat lurking that will use differences as an excuse. Yes, and we're also not having a serious discussion about this. It's like. Yeah, there are men are overrepresented at the top of the economic apex. That's true. It's a small minority of men, by the way. It's certainly not men in general, but they're radically underrepresented at the bottom, overrepresented at the bottom. Mm. And believe me, man, like nobody cares about men who are failures. They are like off the bloody radar. Yeah. So and and there's no sympathy for men who are failures. So men stack up at the top and the bottom. And, and, and we don't have a discussion about that. And we don't have a discussion about the fact that women are radically underrepresented in dangerous jobs, although they are, or in, or in, or in, or in trades that require like brutal physical labor. Women are radically underrepresented. Or in, or in jobs outside, women are radically underrepresented. So the complaint is always, well, if you look at the top 
1%, it's, there are more men than there should be you know, by pure sex division. It's like, well, yeah, but if you look at the bottom, the reverse is true. So if we're going to have the discussion, which I, and I don't really necessarily think we should have that discussion, but if we're going to have the discussion, then we should look across the entire economic spectrum. I wonder how much of this debate is being governed by unconscious forces. I wonder how much of what we're experiencing is a, a manifestation of uh, a sort of un... Uh, where cartography has not yet been. Well, mm-hmm. I think, that, you know, I think my, a lot of it. What yeah. Are you thinking about any particular part of it? What I feel like is that the reason that, uh, that I imagine that your arguments that are based on research are so successful is because people are expressing feelings as opposed to cogent and researched arguments. Mm-hmm. It feels like there is a powerful, dominant patriarchy. And no one can deny, I mean, that there is power. There's such a thing as power. And there are people that benefit from structures being as they are. Of course, of course. That's the point of those structures being the way they are. One of the things I've observed is that whenever change is discussed, you know, and my tendency has always been to be sympathetic towards movements that are about change or empowerment of what might be termed disadvantaged groups um that change is all that that when you're curious about the resistance of change or the difficulties that you face when trying to bring about change look at who would be negatively impacted were that change to be brought about and usually that means that there's some people for you know conservatism makes sense to a particular group of people Mm -hmm. one of the things i felt when um reading a book was that you know like i i because i think you're coming from a perspective of psychoanalysis and it, it rings very the language rings true and the analysis rings true that what i where i feel one question i was keen to bring to you is when you talked about skateboarders in the so i think it's the last but one chapter and that spirit of a, a, a young courage. people yeah courage yeah. and a willingness to try dangerous things and to yeah. push forward um i wonder how that sits with the idea of uh, uh, an earlier passage in the book where you talk about uh, the gratitude that we should feel for, you know, having time to read a book and the ability to read a book and sort of respect for the establishments and systems that have been set up from which we all benefit. You know, because when I, you know, I I could find it difficult to dispute your opinion about sort of a churlish, what would have been in the lexicon of the day, social justice warriors and that kind of somewhat rootless unresearched rage you know i i i i identify what you're saying there people that can't keep their bedrooms tidy be careful before you let them organize an economic system but like (laughs) but but similarly like you know where is change going to come from who are who is going to challenge tyranny yeah is it going to be those are those are the sorts of, of of twin forces that we have to contend with across the political spectrum so i could run through something quickly Please. to put the things that you just that you just brought up in 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 perspective Thank let's you. say okay so the first thing is is that hierarchies if you're going to value some things more than others then hierarchies are inevitable and you have to value some things more than others, or you don't have anything well, valuable. Like beauty or strength or something. Or, well, or, or, or competence or, sure, whatever, whatever mm. it happens to be. The ability to play the flute, mm. right? It doesn't matter it's what it is. High on my list. Well, what, 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 you know, obviously, if you value music, then you're going to value some musicians more than others mm. because some are better. Mm. So, it's, and 
So you have to value things in order to move forward in life, and you have to value things in order to have something valuable to produce. But if you play out the value in a social landscape, you're going to produce a hierarchy. And the problem with producing a hierarchy is that a small number of people are going to be more successful than the majority, and a very large number of people aren't going to be successful at all at, at that particular thing. It's inevitable. So, mm -hmm. okay, now, so, so you say, well, we have to put up with that because we need to pursue things of value. Okay, fine. So that's the right-wing perspective, is that the hierarchies are justifiable and necessary. Now, the left-wing perspective is, yeah, but wait a minute. The problem with hierarchies is that people stack up at the bottom and that they tilt towards tyranny across time. And that's also true. And so you need that dialectic in society between the right wing that says, you know, we need the hierarchies and they're useful and you should be grateful for them. And they structure you and give you form and provide value. And the left that says, yeah, but they exclude people and people stack up at the bottom. And that's dangerous to the hierarchy itself. And it, it means that people might not have opportunity. And you have to say yes to that. The problem comes, and, and this is the situation we're in right now, where the radical leftists, and this is mostly a problem that, that really permeates the universities, the radical leftists say, yeah, but all hierarchies are just tyrannical power. It's like, oh, no, they're not. Hierarchies are based on competence in a functioning society, and mostly our society functions. So you need, you, you can't go that far. Now, that doesn't mean that that hierarchies don't tilt towards self-interest and tyranny across time, but that's a bad thing. It's even a bad thing from the conservative perspective. So, well, so there's room for the left. There's room for the left because the poor will always be with us. That's the reason that there's room for the left and that the dispossessed need a voice, not least because there are talented people among the dispossessed and if they're stuck at zero, everyone suffers because we don't have access to their talents. It's bad use of resources. But on the right, it's like, no, we need the damn value hierarchies. We need to be grateful for our traditions and our structures because they, they stop us from degenerating into chaos. Also, across our society, numerous hierarchies emerge. And at some point, decisions are being made about which thing, you know, is it being a brilliant flautist or brilliant at tennis or brilliant at owning land or controlling energy resources or dominating financial systems which are the hierarchies that are most important and also the uh what because like the it's the way that resources are designated and challenging those hierarchies seems to become well almost impossible um when i was leaving the hospital the brilliant hospital that's been taking care of my mother I sort of like you know when at the level of crisis and trauma and tragedy they are excellent. They've got the sort of mm -hmm. the best doctors. Mm -hmm. The guy Martin Griffith that operated on her uh, bowel. He's like a fantastic surgeon. He it's in fact him that Trump was quoting when he talks about European hospitals with blood spattered floors from knife crime. It was a sort of a mangling of a quote that that this Martin Griffith had given. And then sort of like I step outside like in a sort of I'm driving along along Whitechapel Road and there are. Um, electronic advertising boards and it that uh, you know that require energy yep. to tell me to eat you know sort of uh, mcdonald's or kit kats or whatever and there's so much poverty on that street there always has been in that part of east london terrible mm -hmm. poverty mm -hmm. and i feel so moments there are moments when i helicopter out to the macro a perspective that no individual can long hold a weight that can't be long borne but in that moment i think why is this hospital struggling for resources when we can afford to run electronic adverts for McDonald's. Who 
gets to decide how collectively and individually do we determine where resources and where power, both in terms of energy, but also in terms of human power, end up? How are these decisions made? And as you say, among the dispossessed, there is there are great resources, great talent. One would imagine, if the research were possible, to the exact same degree as there is power and talent am- among the possessed, because it's normally an accident of birth that decrees. And reading about your early life in Canada, in a blue collar community, and the sort of the mental health issues and the anger and agitation that grows there, so much of that is about resources, the dispossession of the native people of that area, the mental health issues of your friend Chris. Like, that, for me, we that are rising through these hierarchies, we that have experiences of both sides of that line, well, we are now challenging this evolutionary force. We are now ch- in a position to talk about these hierarchies, how they're ordered and how they're organised, and whether there is room for negotiation. Well, it's up to us to do that. Because we must, we have mustn't to keep, we? Well, we? So have don't you think there's a risk in conservatism of saying, well, this is how the cards have fallen? And Of course there is. That is the risk in conservatism. So how the do risk we is confront that, they, that? Well, the risk is that the, 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 the hierarchies ossify and turn to stone, and then there's no mobility. And, and the idea that, that things can turn to stone and they become tyrannical is an extraordinarily old idea. For example, in, in the story of Exodus, the story of Moses, so the Egyptian... The Egyptians are portrayed in that story as tyrannical conservatives, essentially, right? And they're masters of stone. And Moses is a master of water, and water is the thing that dissolves. And so that drama is being played out in these stories that are thousands of years old. And in the Egyptian story, the ancient Egyptian story of Osiris and Horus, Osiris is the old king who becomes too rigid. And what happens to him is that he's, he's dismembered by evil. That's the consequence. And so even the Egyptians long ago knew that the danger of hierarchies is they become static and corrupt and tyrannical. And so part of what we do in our ongoing political dialogue and, and, and when it's genuine dialogue is to say, well, look, are these, do these systems have it? We need them. They're, they're not avoidable. Mm. But do they, are they functioning properly? Are, are they loose enough so that people can move? Are they, are they serving the broader good? Or have they degenerated into something that's too tyrannical? Now, you know, you you kind of pointed to both of those in the way you formulated that question because you said, look, well, I, my mom was in the hospital and she needed care. And so, and I found a surgeon who was an excellent surgeon. And so, so what you did there basically was take a bow to the, you bowed before the functional hierarchy of the hospital and said, look, the greatest surgeon actually rose to the top and thank God for that because otherwise my mother would be dead. It's like, yes, that's a competency hierarchy. And it could be contaminated by tyranny, in which case it would be the brother of some powerful person who ended up with the surgical position, right? And then everyone dies. And that does happen in many, many cultures where nepotism or connections define your position on every axis. But then you said, well, but I went out of the hospital and I, I was driving down the road and I saw what appeared to be a misallocation of resources. Mm-hmm. And what we have to do about that is have, have a discussion about it constantly. It's like, are we allocating resources to the appropriate place? Mm. Now, the, the other lurking problem there is to what do, degree do we decide about the allocation of resources by voluntary effort, by, by planning, and to what degree do we let the market take care of it? And that's also something that continually requires negotiation. Yeah, that market, because, mate. We well, can't trust that. 
Well, that, that's the that's the question. Is people talk about it like it's a neutral thing, but it's mm. just a conglomeration of interests of the powerful. Well, it's 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 a bunch of things. I mean, it's that it can be that, but it can also be the way that we collectively value things. Like, let me give you an example. Yeah, but look at our collective values, and I'll just quickly say this. Yep. Because I heard this thing in in Sweden. They uh, con- regulate and control access to alcohol at a state level, like off licenses or liquor stores. They're sort of socially run, and like they're not allowed to be advertised in Sweden. You know, Sweden, I guess, is one of those havens of what you might, I don't know what your views are of Sweden, but I see a lot of stories about Sweden that seem a bit like, uh, I don't know, Sweden comes across as, this, I guess, a sort of this sort of postmodern democracy mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. in some respects. Anyhow, uh, like, I, I thought it was curious that they control alcohol in that manner. And I am envisaged that sort of breweries and liquor distributors would say, hey, that's not free market. You're controlling access to, you know, people's access to alcohol. As if somehow the free market was neutral. But there is no neutral. If the market is what has the power, people's desires will be overly stimulated. People, if people, like, if people have McDonald's advertised at them or alcohol advertised at them, people will bloody eat McDonald's and alcohol. There has to be some moralizing force. There has to be something that's not economically led, that's not the manifestation of greed that's in the conversation. Someone in a secular society where there is no reasonable or trusted voice of God has to be able to say, don't well, drink so too then, much alcohol right, or eat too right, much okay, McDonald's. Because so, otherwise people will. Okay, so, so see, I think, I think the most effective solution to that problem is to have the economic system run, let's say, by distributed individuals who are themselves aiming at a higher good. So I think the way that you, the most effective way of regulating the market, so to speak, is to improve the moral character of the people who make up the market rather than directly regulating the market. And I'll, I'll t- I'll, not that the market doesn't necessarily need some regulation because you might say, well, how about we don't devote alcohol advertising to children under 10? Most people would agree that that's a reasonable perspective. Yeah. And so that is limitation on market forces. And there are places that you can find that, um, that, that limitation being accepted by almost anyone. Mm-hmm. But, but in the, the, part of what you're pointing to is that if the only thing that's governing the market is concern for pure market success, then the market can produce mm-hmm. all sorts of excesses. But I think what you want, you want, what you want is to help orient people towards a, a transcendent good that's uh, oh, that's over and above market interest. So you might say, well, what interest should you serve as you're trying to be successful as a comedian or, and, and while you're trying to make a living as a comedian, say, you might want to make sure that you're conducting yourself appropriately in the marketplace. You're concerned about yourself, but also your future selves because you have to take, and that's partly why addiction is such a catastrophe, right? Because it's great in the short term, but it's not so good in the medium to long run. So you have to take care of yourself and and your, your iterations through the future. You have to take care of yourself in a way that you're taking care of your family. You have to take care of yourself and your family in a way that you're benefiting the community. And that should be foremost in your mind. So then when you start to make economic decisions, even in your business, you're not saying, well, I'm going to do whatever I can to make as much money as I can. You're going to say, I'm going to do whatever I can to make as much money as I can, while also making sure that I'm taking care of myself and my future selves and my family and my community and being like gra- grateful for all of that and serving it properly. And then I think the market can work more effectively, but still might require some, some discussion around the edges because, mm. you know, nothing is simple. 
So the, re the reason that I'm concentrating on the individual and individual development is because I think that's the best way to do that regulation. I think that's important. I think it's non-negotiable. I think it's necessary. But I also believe that if you have a society that's predicated on the some of the worst aspects of human behaviour, lust, desire, fear, if lust, fear and desire are so high in the mix, if you're continually being prompted towards onanism and consuming, I think it's that individual improvement will be insufficient. I, I feel that your success is... But, uh, I don't know what it's based on, but I feel that like to a degree you've contacted people and, oh, yeah, I can improve my own life. I can have a bit of personal authority and autonomy. And I think that's hugely positive. But if every time you step out of your house, every, if every time you interface with society or pick up your phone or look at a screen, the aspect of yourself that's being nurtured, that's being invited to participate are the lower aspects of your nature because those are the most successful routes to a person's mm, decision-making impulses, then I think that it's difficult to exceed. I think it's difficult for these individual projects to ex to succeed. I think that you'll, you know, certain people, will that, that message will take hold, but others, it won't. So on to some degree, Agree. We, I feel like I ain't like a big fan of regulation. I understand your irritation about what's being like this uh, sort of a postmodern deconstructionalist argument of let's destroy God, let's destroy all categories, man, woman, none of it's real. I believe in essence the humours, the deities, the gods. I feel these things are present. But I feel that we're already being subject to a kind of invisible tyranny, that it's already happening. And I don't think it's happening as a result of like some critical theory, post-Marxist. Like, I feel that, that that's not where power is. That feels like it's sort of well, bullshit, we could, we could but it doesn't feel like it's as fucking powerful as Glaxo Klein or like, you know, it's not as powerful as uh, Halliburton or like, you know, these. That's what I'm interested in is power real power and how power is functioning and how power is uh, negatively impacting ordinary people. Well, I think it's perfectly reasonable to point out that there might be multiple ways that people experience tyrannical oppression. Now, because every hierarchy is going to tilt towards tyrannical form in its own particular way. And so I've been concerned about what's happening in the university on the radical left. Mm. And your concern, the concern that you just brought up is something like... Um, overwhelming large-scale corporate dominance and I think that's also a reasonable set of concerns you know it might not be for the best for example that all of our communication is filtered through Google mm. that might be a bit too much um, the question is the, the question always is is what we can do about it and I think the answer the there's an answer to that actually the answer is we can leave people's ability to communicate untrammeled and so that's why I'm an advocate of free speech. We can leave people's ability to communicate untrammeled so that we can have intelligent discussions about those problems as they emerge and hopefully work towards solutions. Because we can't just generate a structure of rules that says, well, here's the 10 rules that are going to deal with that complex situation. Because things change too rapidly for that. And the reason that freedom of speech, as far as I'm concerned, is the paramount freedom, the paramount right, also the paramount moral obligation is because it's through the it's through our ability to exchange to 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 um, to exchange honest opinions that we participate in the process that enables us to keep tyranny of the sort that you described and the sort that I described at bay. And so part of the reason that I've taken the tack I have politically is because, well, my government had the gall to 
implement compelled speech legislation without noticing what it was that they were interfering with. Because you might say, well, well, that's that's pretty much the end of it. How do you keep tyranny at bay? Free the 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 proper exchange of ideas between free individuals keeps tyranny at bay. That's the best we've got. It doesn't work perfectly. And it's also, I think, a gift that England, in, in, in large part, has given to the rest of the world to formalize and codify that, to put it into a body of law, to erect governmental structures that are really predicated on that idea. It's a remarkable achievement, and it's something we should be profoundly grateful for. Thank you. I want to talk to you about the taking that um, accepting praise on the behalf of England there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As an English person, I accept that. Um, <clears throat> there are two dragons then. There is the inner and the at least until we reach some mm. non-dualistic utopia where mm. everything is one. There is the inner dragon of mm. our own desires and fears. But I suppose like when we're talking about management of resources, is that a phrase that, we, that came up earlier? Like that where where does the attention need to go? And it's difficult. Like, you know, me, I suppose there's something about my background that has led me to identify as the dragon. Oh, it's consumerism. It's turning yeah. people into consumers because obviously as an addict, that's what I am, a consumer, an right. ultra consumer. And it seems that you with your background in academia, this the, the this uh, neo-Marxist post, because like when I sort of like think about aspects of socialism, e.g., you know, people are working too hard, you should only work four hours a day, mm -hmm. there should be time for fishing in the afternoon, which I think is in Das Kapital, I think he talks about fishing in the afternoon. You know, for me, that seems like a very beautiful and fair and just idea. Also, I don't see them, like whilst I can imagine that they're irritating on a campus particularly for somebody who's researched such a lot. I don't see them as powerful. That's mm -hmm. my, that's part of my intrigue. I suppose it's comparable to when I was talking to Sam Harris, another person who I admire, but whom I go, oh, yeah, but I don't like, you know, like I was, when I'm talking to Sam Harris about Islam, I go, yeah, but when, like, where's, how is Islam going to, like, like <laughs> I feel like, it, like even if you talk about Saudi Arabia and Wahhabism, like Saudi Arabia is an economic entity. They're not an, Islamic entity in terms of let's go do some Islam. It's like let's go mm -hmm. do some business, no? And like, and so I suppose here, well, my well, I'm concerned mostly. Mm. I'm I'm concerned mostly with the emphasis on on the collective identity rather than the individual identity. Like the process that you just described, I would say, and and this is the answer to the question that you posed at the beginning of our conversation: is is there something universal about the process that you laid out? And I think there is. And I think it's at the core of individual development. And I think it's the most powerful of forces. And so I think that the individual should be regarded as the proper locus of evaluation. And the problem I have with the postmodern neo-Marxist types, apart from the fact that their analysis tends to lead to a kind of nihilism, is that because they're making the group the paramount level of analysis, this sort of thing gets ignored. And I, mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do in my work we have a program called the self-authoring program mm. that kind of steps people through these 12 steps that you just described. The first thing that people do is write about their past, all the emotional experiences. The second thing they do is take an inventory of their personality faults and virtues so that they can rectify the faults and capitalize on the virtues. And the third thing they do is chart a course for the future that takes them into account and others. And so... And I see it as a reflection of this universal process that you just described. And I think it's the most powerful form of transformation. But more importantly, I also think it's the one that risks doing the least harm, 
Like it hasn't hurt anybody that you've put yourself together. Mm. It's just good, right? It's good for you. It's good for the people that know you. There's nothing about it. And it's, it's the right level of humility because you took what you knew to be wrong in your experience. You took personal responsibility for it. You made changes for yourself. You didn't go around pointing the finger at what was wrong with the external world and trying to fix it. Now, look, it could easily be that once you have your act together, or maybe even before, you should be doing some things to adjust political systems or sociological systems. But the problem with that is, what makes you think you can trust yourself? Mm. You know, and it's like, well, I'm compassionate. It's like, maybe, maybe you're also envious of the successful. And the probability of that's pretty damn high, by the way. And so you better know before you express that compassion, especially in the political domain, whether or not that is contaminated by things about yourself that you haven't contended with. Do you think uh, an honest declaration or, uh, or along those lines, or specifically that, in the political field would be refreshing? Look, I'll tell you one of the... This is a very funny thing. So the ancient... The emperor of ancient Mesopotamia. So this is some of the earliest political documentation we have, by the way. Here's what they used to do to the emperor. Every New Year's Day, they would take him outside the walls of the city. So he was responsible for everything within the walls. Outside was chaos and the unknown. They'd take him outside the city. They'd strip him of all his emperor garb. So he's no longer emperor. They'd make him kneel. They'd humiliate him. I think, the, if I remember correctly, the priest would hit him with a glove and say, okay, in the last year how name all the ways that you didn't embody marduk marduk was the god of the mesopotamians and marduk was the thing that took on the great dragon of chaos and so it was the it was the responsibility of the emperor to to kneel down and say here's all the ways that i haven't been acting out my proper self and have brought the kingdom into disarray and then he would be forgiven. They would act out the reconstruction of the cosmos. That was the New Year's celebration. And then he'd go in and try to be a good king. I like that. So, yeah, yeah, no kidding. Absolutely. It's like the confession of the emperor. Is Here's it, the way I haven't been good. Are there any comparable, uh, are the powerful held up to that kind of evaluation? In We don't have rituals for now? that. Well, I think because we don't acknowledge the emergence of order from chaos, we don't uh, uh, emerge uh, acknowledge divine principles. So the powerful, like, and I think this is possibly because of an assumed meritocracy. That you know, people that are in positions of power, they're there for a reason. You don't need yeah. to start stripping them naked and taking them outside yeah. the city and saying, "How often did you wank in that Oval Office yeah. every day?" <laughs> yeah. Get out. Yeah. Well, I I, th I think there might be something to that, and that's the danger of pride that goes along with ascension in a hierarchy. Well, because I'm here in this position, I must deserve it. It's like, yeah, but there should still be something that you're bowing down to. And that might be the abstract idea of sovereign authority itself, mm. if you think about it only psychologically. Mm. But that's a figure that essentially has a, a, a touch of divinity about it because yes. it's the monarchy. perfect idea. We're in a monarchy right now, huh? So that's the, the queen, the anointed and appointed monarch. She represents, you know, but I suppose in a post-secular nation, she becomes the emblem of Britain rather mm. than the emblem of, God on right. Well, Earth. I think I think it actually functions to some degree in the in same a, way. In, well, I do think so because the queen, your queen in particular, or our queen as well, because I'm oh, Canadian. Yeah, you're Canadian. You know, I mean, I That's think Elizabeth right. has been uh, 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 an embodiment of moral virtue. I mean, she's done a remarkable job over the last what is it, seventy-five years now. She's held herself to an incredibly high moral standard, and I think she does sit in the background as emblematic of what 
sovereign authority might look like. But of course, you're postmodernist, and this is an area where, because I'm, you know, I'm English, and I can't get away from the love of the Queen. But I would mm-hmm. also say that she is an emblem of authority and of power and of wealth and land ownership, mm-hmm. and that there is that there is an order that ought be respected and can't be challenged. Every so often, this country sort of toys with the idea of republicanism. They're always mm-hmm. grateful when there's a wedding, like there is this week, so that no one has to think, "Is this right <laughs> that we're right, paying right. for this bizarre?" Right. spectacle. Yeah, well, but it but it is useful to think about it in a symbolic sense. I mean, one of the things that constantly threatens the United States, I think there should be four branches of government, legislative, judicial, um, um, executive, and symbolic. Because the problem in the United States is the president keeps tilting towards king. You know, the Americans like the idea of the first family and the first lady. Mm. And it's like, yeah... <laughs> no, and and it and, and it kind of tilts towards a dynasty, and you've seen that happen with the mm. Bushes and the Clintons. And it's not it's it's not a good thing, and it might be nice to have someone take the symbolic load off the president and just act that out. And your Queen does that very nicely, because all of the pomp and circumstance of the state and all the drama and ritual of the sovereign can be played out in that sort of dramatic space, and your legislature and executive branches can go off and do the administration. It's interesting that the uh, that the, the dynasties exert themselves. In a sense, it's a demonstration of your argument that there are certain hierarchical systems that find their way into fruition regardless mm. of regulation, but then I suppose there's rational reasons. They would have the resources, the experiences, mm. the, con- the connections. Sure, to it's it. easier for them, but that's also the, that's a danger to a republic is the fact that, and, and it's part of the potential corruption of the state, is that, well, it, it's easier for the children of those who have authority to have power. And you don't want people attaining the pinnacle of achievement because of power. You want them attaining the pinnacle of achievement because of competence. competence. Yeah, yeah. And, and those yeah. things always struggle. They all, and and it, it, it takes a society that's very awake to stop the hierarchies from degenerating into hierarchies of power. Because degeneration is the tendency. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, it's easy. It's easy. Because you quote right? that W.B. Yeats poem, you know, that fearsome and terrifying, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the Faulkner poem. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and people have recognized that it's the proclivity of hierarchies to towards tyranny for, for really for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. I've, I've seen that as a fundamental danger to proper adaptation. We need hierarchies. Yes. But they degenerate into tyranny and they unfairly oppress. It's like, yes, we have to be on guard against that. But that doesn't mean that we call all hierarchies tyrannies because that's not helpful. Or we call all productive activity service in the in the, you know, service to the oppressive patriarchy because that's seriously not helpful. And we don't dispense with hierarchies because then people don't have anything to do. Yes. So I see. Yeah, get the beam out your eye, huh? Like mm. so. So if the individual is attuned, if the individual is a channel, I'm going to like. I, I like the prayer of Saint Francis. I I like it as a model that it invites us to find the reverse of each uh, defective characteristic that we or sin that we mm. might be living out uh, to become a channel of some inherent goodness. Mm-hmm. We well, the, well, the the thing that's one of the things that's interesting about that. Well, two things actually. The first is, the word sin means to miss the target. It's an archery term, so that's quite that's a very interesting way of thinking about it because it means that there is a target. There is a target. That's the thing. But the next thing is, and, and this this comes right out of that is, it's very useful to become aware of your faults, because as soon as you posit a fault, you posit the opposite. 
by merely saying, well, that's a fault, you're saying implicitly, well, there's mm. something that's the opposite of that. So out of your recognition of faults, immediately some clarity of virtue develops. Because you might say, well, this is a fault and I really know it. It's like, great, you've got some bedrock there. Whatever mm. the opposite of that fault is, you might not know what that is, but whatever the opposite of that fault is, is a virtue. And then you might say, well, look, I have 20 faults. It's like, great. The opposite of the personality that has all those 20 faults is the virtuous you, whatever that might happen to be. Well, great. Then you've, then you've conjured out of the devil um, a, a redeemer. It's something like that. I like so. that. The, undoubtedly, both in terms of cosmology and fleeting morality, there is chaos. There is vastness. But there are also patterns. Mm -hmm. There are patterns that emerge. And whether you call that pattern male or love or beauty, mm -hmm. there are various patterns. And I feel that there is, there is something to get in alignment with. There is a mm -hmm. tune. There is harmony. There is melody. There is grace. We're not That's all dealing expressed with in just music. And all you're using there are musical, musical um, um, what would you call, analogies or musical yes, representations. Yes. That's what music expresses, is to have all of that in harmony. Yes, and people love language. music because of that. You know, and those patterns, because music, you think about music, it is the harmonious interaction of patterns. And you just described all those positive, uh, what would you call them, spirits, that's a good way of thinking about it, as patterns. Well, they are patterns. And then you might think that there's a pattern that's composed of all of those patterns. Well, that's what you're after. You're after yes. the pattern that's composed of all those patterns. Yes, absolutely. And you want to put yourself in harmony with that. And that is a real thing. That's a real thing. You yes. can feel that. So it's what keeps you alive, essentially, when you're trying to become conscious. Yes, yes. There is something important happening. I feel that like uh, what we were saying before about uh, the acknowledgement of difference needn't infer inferiority. That is something that mm -hmm. we must Definitely invite. not. Well, we should be actually... Well, and this is part of what the radical leftists keep saying is, well, we should celebrate diversity. It's like, yes! But what that means first is the admission that people actually differ. Yeah, Otherwise, yeah. you don't have diversity. It's like, I'm glad there are conservatives. I'm glad there are leftists. The conservatives run things. The leftists invent them. It's like, good. And they're really different, those people. Like, you know, if you, if you have a group that's all conservatives and they're going down the right path, they're going to go down that path really fast. But if they're going down the wrong path, they're not going to be able to think laterally and figure out how to get out of it. If you have a group of, of left-leaning creative types, it's like they're going to come up with a hundred ideas. But the probability that they'll organize in a stable hierarchy and Im implement those effectively is zero. So they're going to have to call over the conservatives. It's like, look, guys, we finally got a good idea. You can have one idea because you're conservatives. Run with it. And then they can all run with it. And so it's really good that we have people who are like that on both sides of the distribution because otherwise the the... Creative types would sit around and come up with new ideas till they starved to death in squalor. Those and potheads. Yeah, well, exactly. And the conservatives would just ossify and, and you know, run down a, a road that got narrower and narrower and narrower, and they'd all end up stuck between two cliffs. Hmm. And that'd be the end of it for both of them. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. We require synthesis. This is so. And that's this, the interplay of opposites, actual opposites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yin yang. The sort of yes. There needs to be necessary collusion between distinction. But for that to happen, there needs to be acknowledgement and recognition of difference. Yes. Um, but in an, a, trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's that. That's exactly right. 
That's exactly right. That cool. is not a successful route. <clears throat> Thank you, Dr. Professor Jordan Peterson. We have good chats, don't we? That was great. Yeah, that was really good. Hmm. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks for inviting me back again. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you.